Welcome to episode 10 of The Reading Cure. In this episode, we'll be discussing the novel Quartet in Autumn by Barbara Pym. Welcome to The Reading Cure, where great books and great ideas are what we like to prescribe. My name is Dr Stephen Davis and my co-host is Dr Alexander Fox. Barbara Pym was an English novelist who enjoyed two distinct periods of success in her literary career. In the 1950s, she wrote a series of social comedies, including Excellent Women, Jane and Prudence and Less Than Angels, which attracted considerable critical acclaim, including from the poet Philip Larkin, who became a lifelong champion of Pym's work. Her novels often featured church-going, rural communities and anthropologists, the latter being no doubt inspired by Pym's 30-plus years working as an assistant editor for the scholarly journal Africa at the International African Institute in London. Pym's fifth novel, A Glass of Blessings, received poorer critical reviews and come the early 1960s, both her sales and relations with her publisher were in decline. This marked the onset of what has been termed Pym's wilderness years, as she published nothing at all between 1962 and 1977. Then, in January of the latter year, the Times Literary Supplement published an article about the most underrated English novelists of the century, and two of the contributors to that article, one being Philip Larkin, highlighted Pym as having been hugely underappreciated. This sparked a renewed interest in her work from publishers, and later that year, the landmark novel, which we'll be discussing today, A Quartet in Autumn, was published, going on to receive a nomination for the Booker Prize that year. Barbara Pym would only live another three years after this. Um, She died of breast cancer in 1980, and thus only experienced the early years of her literary revival and renewed appreciation by critics and the wider reading public. Um, Pym never married, despite having a number of relationships throughout her life, and lived with her sister Hilary in her final years. Hilary and others would go on to champion Pym's work after her death, helping to establish her reputation as one of the great English novelists of the 20th century. Coming then to this novel, Quartet in Autumn, this poignant tragicomedy tells the story of four London office mates in the 1970s, Letty, Marcia, Norman and Edwin, who are all approaching retirement. All are bereft of partners, have little in the way of close family and few social contacts outside of their work. Letty's retirement plan is to move it to to a house in the countryside with her friend Marjorie, but this is scuppered when the latter becomes engaged to a local minister. Whereas for the withdrawn Marcia, retirement allows her to retreat entirely into her own world of categorising her strange collection of tins, milk bottles and plastic bags, which she pursues obsessively in the grand but dilapidated home that was formerly her mother's. As time goes on, Marcia becomes increasingly alienated from social life and indeed reality itself and stops eating properly despite having recently been operated on for a breast tumour. With the retirement of the two women, Norman and Edwin equivocate about how much to keep in touch with them, eventually leading Edwin to do a belated check-in on Marcia. He finds her emaciated and close to death, and she passes away shortly after in hospital. This tragedy, however, leads Edwin, Norman and Letty to rally together again for her funeral, with the hard-up Norman ultimately learning that Marcia has left him her house. Letty comes to see more hope for finding some fulfilment in her retirement, 
which may well involve a more attentive friendship with Norman and Edwin. Now, just before we begin our discussion of today's featured book, um, I just wanted to remind you that um, there are a number of things you can do to help support the podcast if you have been enjoying The Reason Cure. Um, you can hit subscribe on YouTube or on podcast apps. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And lastly, we have a Patreon page as well if you'd be interested in supporting us there. You can find uh, links to all of these on our webpage, which is thereadingcure.com. And thank you to those who are already supporting the podcast in various ways. Um, that support is hugely appreciated. So first question then, Alec. Um, in this novel, Quartet in Autumn, do you think, is, is it mainly social convention that leads the characters to keep their distance from each other? Or do you think... Pim is really writing about something more innately antisocial that's within all of us. Yeah, well, my initial answer to that is that there would be a contextual element to it in as far as these were four rather different people being forced to share an office. And in that context, it was difficult for them to be um, that open with each other. They were also leading rather reclusive lives out with the office. Um, so I think that's why they, they could kind of come across as uh, wary about how much they open up because it is a, a work environment and quite a an intimate one in the sense of four people within one office and yet they, they keep their distance um, there. So I do think there was the contextual element but there could be a more wide-ranging element. and Because if you think about what it is to have a self, as we ordinarily view it, a self, we have a, a public-facing self, our persona, and then we have a more private self, which we may share and ordinarily do, at least with a few intimate others. But that sort of difference between the public and private self means that practically all of us are hiding something from the wider world. We all have our secrets or things that we don't want to disclose, and that can vary in extent. Uh, there might be some things that we haven't shared with anyone. And so there is that thing about the nature of a private self that, uh, that suggests that you know human beings don't disclose everything, that they hold back from others, particularly others that are work colleagues, as uh, as these four were. I mean, they weren't only work colleagues. Part of the, the, the subtlety of this novel is that while they were work colleagues on paper and they weren't quite intimates, uh, they were in this kind of liminal zone between colleagues and friends. Uh, they were the only community that they really had, uh, the four of them. They, they were the the only real friends that they had, even if they fell short of being friends. So, yeah, I think that it is a part of our nature to uh, hold back. Maybe not to be antisocial necessarily, but not to be too open. Uh, we all feel like being closed to some extent. We don't want to be open books completely. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think so. I mean, 
it's I think you're I think in terms of the idea about how much is it is it convention or is it antisocial or or indeed as you say maybe more just a kind of guardedness that you know the public face idea I think I think it is some combination of the two um, I mean it struck me it was you know there's an interesting scene early on where one of the the women in the office Letty goes to this restaurant for lunch called the Rendezvous but it, it, the way it's depicted you know it's full of people who go there alone yeah. you know and it's all and it, and it talks about office workers who just come in and shovel some food in their mouth yeah. quickly and leave you know and there's a point where somebody at our table maybe looks up to maybe you know they're not not coming together but this woman maybe is going to make a comment about the menu and Letty doesn't take her on yeah. and it does kind of yeah d- depict a kind a working world where there's there are kind of conventional channels that people are operating on in terms of how far they go socially. Um, I do, I think you I think that's true though. Also, an important the, the idea about the kind of you, you mentioned the liminal idea of, of this you know the space they're in because it, you know they have co- interesting conversations mm. together in the office sometimes about you know random mm. things you know sometimes they're talking about well about getting older mm. and about death and about you know and then they'll talk about their holidays and you know there's a kind of mixture of the mm. maybe the more conventional public stuff but maybe occasionally a bit more of openness about themselves they certainly know the details of each other's Mm. lives and the fact that they are all quite lonely and quite isolated they're aware of that so yeah there's they're in a kind of funny place i think and i think that's what they're grappling with really in this book isn't it that they that you know whether to become friends or not or quite how that could even work given given what they're all like you know it's a sort of uneasy transition that they're not quite sure they want to make actually as as the you know the kind of retirement of of letty and marcia looms so yeah i think i think there's there is both isn't there i think there's certainly well there is and and i remember reading a book by a philosopher i can't recall his name but it was called awkwardness and it was about the nature of awkwardness and he he said that awkwardness is where social norms break down or they can't really encapsulate a given situation, and therefore it's awkward. And there is yeah. a, an awkwardness to some extent uh, with the characters in this office. They're very familiar with each other in a sense because they see each other day in, day out, five days a week. But there is a kind of awkwardness or hesitancy about how far they should, you know, be how much they should become friends, how much they should open up. As you say, they do open up about certain things, but they don't go too far. Uh, they don't. Yes. It doesn't go into the realm of friendship, quite. And that's because I think they're existing in this awkward zone of, um, you know, being ve- very familiar with each other in one sense, but in another sense, not really knowing each other too well and being rather different people. And there isn't really a a social role that encapsulates that liminal realm, you know, between work colleague and friend. You could say associate, maybe, uh, acquaintance, but, you know, it's really hard to define what they are to each other. Uh, It's not quite workmate just, and it's not quite friend either. 
Um, it's it's quite it's quite a strange one really because I mean for example you know it's it's there's almost like a sort of married couple familiarity you know there's there's one point I think where you know Letty she should Cookins mentioned mm. and it says you know she knows that inevitably Norman is now going to describe yeah. how he likes to fry mm. everything and he makes bad omelets <laughs> it's like that sort of kitchen sink mm. familiarity so they 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 have that but it's like in a way they they know each other too well you know they've had so much of the kind of concrete humdrum of each other that they don't really find each other a very exciting prospect actually socially in some ways and and also they are different so yeah there's a kind of strange mixture of intimacy and and distance actually like the if it's maybe anti-social isn't quite the word but there's a sort of unwillingness actually to get too involved with each other maybe partly because they do know each other in some ways quite well and are yeah. not that interested um, well i think that's yeah. a very good point that <clears throat> they do know each other very well in terms of certain details of their lives, you know, their home lives, even though they've never visited each other's homes until later on yeah. in the, the novel with the tragic circumstances. But, yeah, in, in one sense, you could see them, or certainly Norman and uh, Marcia as a, a kind of couple, but a kind of couple that have got well past the honeymoon stage and they know each other what they're going to say what the, what they think but it is rather wearying uh, and unedifying yes i think so i mean that yeah there's a there's a quote actually about you know that because it's intimated at various points marcia and norman two of the you know mm. had the, a faint sense yeah. of attraction and it says a faint stirring of interest, many degrees cooler than tenderness. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, this is this yeah. is this is about it. it's 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 so lukewarm. It doesn't actually inspire any particular action. It's kind of lingering. But um, I mean, it, it then describes that Marcia she has this operation mm. because I think she has a like a breast cancer, yeah. and then she becomes infatuated with the the doctor. You know, as a as a kind of fantasy. Mm. She knows she'll she'll never be with him or anything like that. But she becomes mm. f- sort of fascinated on his well-to-do life and she imagines his family home and and it describes that as being you know kind of she loses all interest in Norman who understandably seems Mm. a lot less exciting in comparison than Dr Strong you know yeah Um, but yeah well but yes the the, the, when we look at Norman we're looking at um, an ineffectual man in many ways you know he is a he is a he is a sort of uh, you know he he, frustration is the main emotion that he feels. Uh, frustration yes. that comes from a sense of ineffectuality, a sense of powerlessness. Whereas Mister Strong, as the name suggests, is someone of status, of potency, of consequence. Very different to Norman. Of course, as you say, there's no way that the eccentric Marcia, working in an office, would ever really find herself. Uh, within the orbit of Mr. Strong, if she wasn't a patient, that is. Uh, So, yes, while Marcia's turned her head in her fantasy to Mr. Strong, it's the Normans of this world that that she would... that that would be possible dating partners. And you can see from both sides why that doesn't really happen. It's not. It's not very tempting, isn't it? Really. Well, exactly. And, it's the, it's that's it. It's. I mean, you know, you've got Norman mm. who ha- harps on about prices. You know, mm. 
um, Edwin, he's an only mm. really seems to be interested in churches yeah. and church life. And then Marcia, that she collects these tins. And, you know, that they have these, you know, kind of obsessive hobbies, tendencies that they've become yeah. lost in. And it really hasn't made them very appealing company, no. actually. You know, they, no. they, they've, they've, they've kind of slightly failed to really cultivate a great... A great, um, you know, roundedness to their to their characters. Well, unfortunately, yes, yeah. This um, ties in with what you were saying is anti-social uh, behaviour because I think there's two points that could be made here. One of them is, as you say, all of these characters, maybe Letty less so, to be fair. Are yes. the th- at least three of them are deeply entrenched in a certain perspective. With Marcia, it's particularly obvious what that one is, her hoarding, her, her, yeah. her obsessions. Uh, but all, uh, the three of them are very much uh, operating within a fixed perspective, which means that if you didn't share that perspective, they couldn't really be reached. They're somewhat alienated by... Uh, how deeply entrenched their perspective is. It's not. It isn't too open uh, to life, and it isn't too varied, as you say. With Edwin, it's church going primarily. Uh, yeah. With uh, with Marcy, it's collecting milk bottles and things like that, which is very is a very impoverished and unfulfilling pursuit. But yeah, the pursuits are quite narrow, and the chances of. Uh, commonality are slim and even if they are shared to a point there is a sort of um, sense of dampening decorum that holds people back and this kind of leads on to another point I want to make is that I think another reason why the characters are a little bit wary of getting too close to each other is that they're not really sure how committed they should be to each other's welfare and so Good. they recognise yep. a certain um, moral imperative or at least a moral consideration for each other, but they are ambivalent about it. Um, you see that <laughs> on doubt. a repeated basis with the characters, particularly centering around Marcia, that they're aware that they could be doing a bit more, uh, looking out for her, but they... The whole back, and that's another reason why I think that they the don't want to be too close or too because closeness comes with commitment, and uh, even church going Edwin is uh, wary about that commitment. Without doubt, I mean, I think that's absolutely key uh, that that point there, Alec, and it's it's in, I thought it was quite really quite quite ingenious, really, about Barbara mm. Pym's writing is that she kind of you know. You do see social convention, but actually it's like the characters themselves, maybe for their slightly more antisocial yeah. or, or, or just ambivalent um, mindsets, are, are using social convention as an excuse, actually, at times. You know, they're thinking, well, you know, maybe the social workers involved exactly. in RCR. You know, it's it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely been used as a kind of, sometimes public justification to each other or justification to themselves because the, and it's, and it, I mean, it's not just to kind of chastise them for that because obviously, you know, the social mm. worker that does visit Marcia, you know, 
she's a very difficult person. You know, she doesn't really want her there and she yeah. just rejects these this kind of reaching out. So they're not really quite sure what to do and they're not very motivated to do that much either, no, unfortunately. No. But I think that's um, a very good point that you made. That I, I would say they, they weaponize that social convention because one of the yeah. one of the critiques in this novel is that concern is becoming um, something the state deals in. So in reality, the people that could show a more authentic concern for Marcia are the three you know, co-office workers, yes. not, not the social worker, because while, she, while the social worker doesn't sound great, she doesn't sound as though she's that empathic. I, I think that Pim is trying to convey, though, that there's no way that this young social worker could have authentic concern like the office workers, like the Edwins and Normans and Lettys that, that are around Marcy, the closest that Marcy has to friends. Um, you know, I'm not saying necessarily that that meant that they had to look after Marcy like a relative necessarily, but that, but you, you can't you can't magic up that concern and it getting handed over to the authorities, to the state, it actually allows people like Edwin to step back from helping Marcia because, you know, he's relieved to hear that the state looks after pensioners, old folk, because it means he doesn't have to do it. And and, and this is something that we also see in, in the modern world with therapy, in that I, I think that, unfortunately, there will be some people that think, right, okay, my partner is, 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 is depressed and such, I'll, I'll just hand him over to a therapist to deal with it. I'm not saying that's wrong, because obviously they can get help through therapy, but it, it does mean potentially that people in their actual lives end up doing less, I think so. I think you're right. I mean, I think that there's definitely a strong moral critique running through the novel about people shunning responsibility for each other. Exactly. Um, it's not to say, I mean, again, and I think it's really well done because in the case of Marcia, I mean, it's very clear that there's almost at some point every character that considers her takes a kind of solace in thinking of somebody else that might be solving the problem. Yeah. You know, our doctor thinks that way. The, the social worker thinks that about, oh, that's good. There was some office mate coming to visit. That's great. Mm. You know, they, they're all kind of a bit baffled and a bit stumped, but at the same time, in the case of those that are the, you know, the, 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 as close as she's mm. got to friends and she doesn't seem to have any family, they, they really are the ones that know her that could make a bit of an impact. And and yeah, they don't do enough. I mean, they, they have the lunch, don't they, Norman and, and Edwin, after yeah. quite a bit after both uh, the women have retired and you know they kind of you know they do it and they go through it but it's they're kind of very explicit about the fact it's a duty and they're mm. glad to have gotten it out of the way you know they don't really want to and you know even even the sort of responsibility they do kind of allow themselves to feel only goes so far you know so it, well, uh, they, yeah they, they but, do yeah. and 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 i do think that's one of the main critiques isn't it about people passing on responsibility of course Pim is is aware as we are reading the novel that Marcy is not an easy person to deal with and she no, is the exactly. ultimate hot potato uh, people yes. are uh, yes. passing her on to other people but I do think that she's nevertheless saying that 
uh, Leite, Norman and Edwin um, perhaps could have done a little bit more for her. And, yeah. and, and the irony is that they recognise that and do do more for her after she's di- either died. this kind of leads quite nicely mm. into the the second question yeah. because you know the issue of what makes her such a hot potato um what the question was what what do you think are the main psychological blind spots of each character that has maybe led to their own particular mode of self-defeating behavior yeah well the i'll start with norman norman is the sure. the cynic the pessimist so he is somewhat embroiled or kept within that limited perspective because he is pessimistic, he's cynical. Uh, it actually blinds him to possibilities in other people's lives. Say if we take his brother-in-law, Kane, that he visits yep. in the hospital. Uh, Kane, uh, Norman just assumes that Kane um, doesn't have much of a life really and yet you know he's got this woman in his life and he's thinking about opening up his own uh, driving instructor school you know these sense that sense of possibility which norman is completely blind to because he doesn't see the world uh, in yes. terms of possibilities perhaps until later on in the novel uh, near the conclusion so that cynicism yeah. and pessimism means that you know norman doesn't look for the silver lining with anything. He doesn't look for opportunities. He, he's actually closed down uh, in in that regard. So I, I would say that with his blind spot was his pessimism, his cynicism. With, Ed, yes. with Edwin, we're looking at, in some ways, a, a more subtler um, blind spot in that he is the dutiful one up to a point. But mm. his... Um, he is somewhat uh, hemmed in by a sense of decorum and social propriety. And and that sort of means that his altruism is, uh, is not quite as authentic. It's a bit more muted, I felt, really, in that uh, Absolutely, he, yeah. he, he, does, he does try to help Letty to, um, you know, get another flat and she ends up moving in with Mrs. Pope, which is not ideal for Letty. But it it was almost as though uh, for Edwin that he wanted to do the right thing, but he didn't, it, it was more for himself than for Letty, which meant that he ended up making some poor choices on her behalf, I feel. I would agree. Yeah. I mean, if if actually, if I maybe just yeah. was to jump in on those two, because I think those are very good points. Yeah. Just in terms of Edwin, I mean, it's he, he seems to me to be the most, you know, to be quite an, an interesting combination insofar as he, as you see, he's dutiful and he's, he's, he's explicitly, you know, a re- religious. And so he, he thinks a lot about what's right and what's wrong, but he's deeply, um, you know, he's, he's kind of adopted a strange widower bachelor mm. lifestyle. You know, it's, 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 you know, described basically that his, his wife has died and this has given him mm. a lot of freedom to go out and do what he really likes, which is get involved mm. in all these kind mm. of church social events. And there is a kind of real, Carefulness about committing to things that aren't 
unenjoyable for him. You know, he, he loves to go for drinks with Father G, as he called, you know, mm. the local, his local minister. Um, and he has this kind of abstract thoughtfulness. He, de- he definitely does. But yeah, to me, there there is just a real, there's a detachment. There was one quote I noted, which is that where they're actually in the hearse together going to Marcia's mm, funeral mm, when it's, mm. a, and the quote is, so it's quoting Edmund. He says, I brought Phyllis here, mm. said Edmund in a matter of fact manner. It's the nearest crematorium for where I live. Yeah. And then it says Letty momentarily embarrassed, but Edwin did not seem to be affected by the memory of his dead wife, only going on to say that they had had a service which was very well attended. Mm. So it's like, you know, there's a, there is a kind of coldness actually to his, at times, you know, decorum and ethical behaviour that, yeah. you know, just, he just seems quite a detached man really. Well, being uh, quite a, yeah, you know. that, that, that's true. I mean, I remember that point in the novel because uh, how matter of fact he was about, his wife's departure and yeah, yeah it, it, it there's this strange blend of pragmatism and and altruism in in edwin which is yeah. probably not uncommon uh amongst congregations you know that you will get the edwins that that their yep. sense of duty means they're quite abstract in how they go about it quite detached from it yes. and because he didn't really have much feeling or consideration for Letty, while he arranges things to help her, he he doesn't do it in a very nuanced or considerate way. So while he is helping no. her, it is quite detached. It's quite pragmatic. It's 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 almost like he's wanting to uh, expend the burden by getting this sorted. He's doing it probably more for himself to be honest, than, than actually for Letty, because he, he didn't really consider what might suit Letty. He didn't consider that maybe Mrs. Pope would have been the ideal uh, landlord and co-tenant yes, exactly. for her. It was all... Yep. There was almost um, a contemptuous disregard for Letty, almost like, well, this will do for her. Um, I think it wasn't It wasn't true. very considerate, even though he did he did actually fulfil a duty in a way, but a duty, as you say, in a, in a kind of detached, and you know, way. I say, yeah, he's a pragmatic altruist. It's a strange blend of qualities. I, well, I think a, a nice little, um, you know, nuance that Pim puts in, which I think illustrates that, is that the, the key, there's an ongoing reference to him eating jelly babies. You know, yeah. at the start, you know, he's, he's he said, would say he would always eat them at the end of lunch and Letty would come back and he would always offer her one knowing she would never accept one, you know, and he would mm. kind of tuck into them. And I think there's a point later after she's she's gone and he's spreading out on her desk and putting his lunch there that he puts his jelly babies down and has a kind of, you know, vivid mm. memory of her that he doesn't quite understand, you know, and it's like, again, he was, it was like he liked to be seen to yeah. be offering them, yeah. but he really just wanted to eat them and and she kind of knew that on some level and and didn't take one yeah yes yeah i mean that's a very good point that he is the kind of person that would love to offer something knowing that you would decline it because at least he'd be seen to offer yes and so so yeah there there is something quite deep about the jelly baby point which is that this is someone that is more very concerned with how he's seen to be dutiful yes. and altruistic, but uh, it's, it's quite reserved, as you say, quite cold in some regards and yeah. uh, quite quite detached 
really. I mean, when when him and, and Norman, you know, when they have the lunch with, you know, the Letty Marcy mm. after they've retired, you know, there's there's the issue of paying for it, you know, and mm. obviously Edmund is aware he's better off yeah. than Norman, so he feels it should be up to him, but then he says, don't worry, I've had lunch vouchers, I hardly paid anything for yeah. it, you know, so he's kind of got, so, you know, it's been a cheap lunch, yes. you know, and, he's, and, he, and he likes that, you know, so well, there, again, there there's, a st- there's a stinginess. There is know, a stinginess a kind of, in yeah. terms of money, and there's a stinginess in terms of... Uh, how much he he puts himself out. There, there's no he 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 hit, he's an altruist that would never sacrifice anything. <laughs> um, yes, so there's a kind exactly, of limit there. Exactly. there. There's no real sacrifice, and and I'm sure that Pym was suggesting that when the lunch vouchers rush, you know, run out, that they might not be getting invited to lunch anymore. Um, well, that's you true, know, yeah. and, and 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 it's it's this sort of mean-spirited gestures that we see recurring in the novel. I'm reminded of Letty's first landlady, how when she has a a coffee morning for the tenants to discuss their next landlord, that she uses the cheaper coffee. Um, Because, you know, you don't want to to use the, the more expensive coffee on that lot. You know, so there is this sort of mean spirit in this. And and people, um, yeah, generosity is pretty rare in this novel. Um, in fact, it's almost it's, it's almost um, it's it's almost like a unicorn. It doesn't exist, you know. There, yeah. There's not there's no real generosity of um, of spirit because as as we've said, the four of them, particularly Norman, Edwin, and Marcia, are so mired in you know, unconstructive perspectives that there's little possibility for them to be that generous. Even even the gesture of Marcia leaving her home to Norman can't really just be yeah. put down to generosity. Um, her motives are a little bit obscure. It's not clear-cut that she thought much about Norman's plight and that's why she she left it to him. Perhaps she did up to a point, no, but I there's, mean- you know... There's also just the darker point that, you know, there really wasn't anybody else, you know, that that was it, you know, that there was no family, there was, the, he was probably her preferred of the three at the office, although she's got an ambivalence about him, but well, yeah, the, I mean, it's the, not. The, the, there was the cousin and her and her son, she left some oh, money yeah, yes, yes, to them, so it does true, seem yeah. like that Marcy did think a bit about Norman's situation, but it wasn't, we know how she feels after he after she sees him watching her with the milk bottles, like how yeah. how uh, irate she is and uh, how what she thinks of Norman quite sometimes. It's far from friendly. It's, 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 it's so, like yeah. both... So I was going to say, it's like, but you know, it's an int- that's a very interesting one, that the way they both misinterpret each other at that moment. And, you know, in terms of, you know, she sees him as, she she calls it loitering yeah. with intent or spying, which she never considers he maybe actually would have wanted to just come yeah, and see her. No. And and he he can't also really admit that to himself. You know, he, it's like he's driven by his unconscious to get a bus in the direction of her house and he doesn't exactly know why, you know. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like there's, he, he it's funny, he, he's kind of, his meanness, if you could call it that is maybe slightly different from from um, Edwin's in terms of he just it's like he's got this sense of being a victim of the world mm. you know it's like he's 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 the it says he's never known his mother he's brought up by an aunt and he's just got it's like he's that kind of 
you know, that kind of man that's just feels very inferior and, and feels bitter. And, and so, you know, he's kind of, you know, quite out of kilter as well with this kind of tender tender side, actually. So it's a, it's a, it's a strange one, that kind well, of, yes, you know, yeah. the, the, their perspectives um, on each other. Norman does feel a bit more tenderness or a bit more warmth towards Marcia than what Edwin ever did. Um, yes. But yes, as you yes. say, he was brought up by an aunt. He probably never felt that much wanted. And for a man in the 1970s working in an office, it, it would have been emasculating in that way because yes. it would have been seen in that more patriarchal times as a woman's job. And so I think there's even some kind of reference to that element of it uh, yeah, in the novel. Right. So, and, and Norman feels ineffectual and he's very frustrated. As you say, he feels like a victim, even though the injustice is a bit more obscure that he suffered um, there yep. too. But when we look at Letty, um, we're looking at someone that uh, her perspective or her limitations are not as obvious as uh, the others. It's not as though she's a stand-in for Barbara Pym, but she's probably the closest character to Barbara Pym in that she has a bit more awareness um, of proprieties and also a bit more awareness of the subtleties of what's going on. But her, yes, but her yeah. limitation is a certain passivity. She is rather timid okay. for most yes, of the novels, yes. and that does change near the end for Letty. But uh, for for much of it, she's mired in a kind of um, uh, passivity of following other people. You know what Marjorie, for example, wants. She, you know, Marjorie suggested that they live together in the retirement, and it's a bit like she is a follower in that regard. Um, and you, you see that with Mrs. Pope, who's a bit insufferable, isn't she? And But yes, Letty, right. Letty is quite timid and to, to, toes the line. But she is, she is more aware of uh, people's ungenerous comments or acts, and she tries to be I, more yeah. considerate, even if, I, even I, if she's somewhat sorry. limited in what she does. Sorry. Yes, I no, I agree, and I think that was a good point about that. Maybe she's the character in a way that's most kind of you know closest to yeah. say, Barbara Pym's own perspective because she there's a kind of she's the only one that I would say is maybe more more lucid about our situation of being a bit isolated and actually making more genuine, realistic mm. attempts to tr to some extent to carve out or, or at least reflect on what a retired life might be. But as you said, she, she yeah, she's she insofar as she acts, it's really restricted and timid and quite conventional, you know. So she's I mean it says like at one point, no, she has she's somebody who's had holidays abroad, which the others haven't had. And at one point she goes to stay with a cousin and they get on well. So there's there's a sense that she's sort of trying, but yeah she is quite a, a tame person and I, th and I thought it was interesting you know what struck me as kind of a not a fatal flaw but you know that the, the the when her um you know she's renting a room in this house and it tr it's it's the, there's new landlords take over the house and they're I guess they're evangelical Christians mm. from Nigeria and so obviously there's a real kind of cultural clash there and and it's like because she's there's obviously kind of implicit racial prejudice yeah. kind of ripples through yeah. that as well obviously the idea of Nigerian landlords and so on and but it's like with her that what what seems to put her off the most is the idea that they're very lively and loud people mm, and mm, you know they're mm. you know depicted as actually quite warm and welcoming 
towards her, but it's like the liveliness is too much for her. So she then goes and moves in with this very stern, quite, you know, quite chilly older woman, Mrs. Pope, who's, Mm. you know, not really going to be a a joyful person to really live with. But, you know, it's like the kind of, you know, she was just a bit too mired to her kind of, you know, the conventions of her upbringing that made her feel like she had to make that move. So, you know, it's not... Well, you know, yeah, so, maybe... uh, uh, yeah, that that's a very good point. That the the liveliness is something that she finds off putting, and and so she she makes uh, you know a bad decision there to leave. I'm, I'm sure at one point she recognises that maybe it would have been best to have stayed um, yeah. with the Nigerian landlord. That it would have been more welcoming. It would have been um, warmer, actually, rather than this austere Mrs. Pope, but. Somebody like Letty, um, see, Letty is the only one in in the novel that has the capacity for regret. Uh, the other three okay. don't. And because yeah. she has that capacity for regret, the more lively people are around her, the more she might be aware of what she's missed out. And okay. uh, the more that she could regret uh, what has happened in her life, even if she's not actually quite sure how she got from her youth to where she is currently. Uh, yeah. She's been so timid and perhaps unreflective at points in her life that she doesn't really know how she's got to this point. But but she's found herself in a somewhat bewildering situation. But there is that sense of of regret there, which the others don't have. She is also the only character that is... And this might be an odd way of putting it, but it is a, a sign of a certain strength that she has in that she's the only character that that can recognise desolation or bleakness of her circumstances at points. The other three yeah. do not see that, at least consciously. It's either that they don't have the capacity to see the bleakness or they're so well defended against it. But Letty... Um, is aware that 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 uh, that retirement stage of life can be desolate if you're not careful, and but the other three don't see that. I think that's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, for one thing, she kind of foresees it. You know, she she's obviously had this arrangement with a friend because she was aware that this was going to be a difficult time, and then obviously, unfortunately, the timing. You know, the friend has mm. has has you know started this relationship again with it's a local vicar, isn't it? A local minister that she so that's kind of thwarted her plans. And yeah, it's like she's she's not she's she's got that self awareness and that foresight. And I think it's a good point as well. Yeah, she can actually you know regret the past her life's taken and be a bit more. Um, yeah, just a bit more affected and, and aware of that. And but at the same time, she's you know like it's the scene where she has lunch with the others. She you know they ask her how she's getting on, and she has to you know say oh well you know um the the days are busy mm. or something like that. She can't actually. She still feels she can't be honest about it. Actually, unfortunately, you know there's a need to kind of keep, you know to some extent um, not expose that kind of vulnerability too too much. You know. Well, yes, um, maybe also is, even to herself. Um, well, yeah. and, and there's probably a lack of awareness there about how it is for others, uh, because it's not as though the other three are leading dramatic lives, uh, fun no. lives. Uh, if she had a bit more awareness, she would guess that they they share quite a lot in common. They share some difficulties in common, uh, but it, it's yeah. as if. Um, 
she she doesn't she wants to keep that sense of propriety and social decorum uh, continuing in her behaviour. Really, what she says is to cover up those vulnerabilities. That, I, yeah, uh, I know that's that's true. When, when we true. look at uh, Marcy, obviously we're looking at the yes. most eccentric of of the four by a long way, and. Indeed, yeah. uh, Probably nowadays she would be diagnosed with OCD, you know, with this hoarding and ordering tendencies. And um, yes. and there's obviously a paranoia that she has too. Um, she is someone that's, that's suspicious and therefore quite ungenerous in her judgments of others. Uh, you know, when she notices the the milk bottle that is uh, not from the same dairy as all the others, she then recalls that's one that that uh, Letty had brought in one, you know, one day and uh, offered some milk, wasn't it, in the office? Yes, right, yeah. And rather than see it as a friendly thing, she sees it as a, a gesture to, um, you know, ruin her system. You know, her yeah. her systemizing of of these milk bottles, and so it's that suspiciousness and that paranoia that that means that she's quite ungenerous in how she sees people and quite antagonistic too as you say that that encounter she has with with norman when they both see each other that she's she sees it as like a loitering with intent you know it, it's yeah. the most pernicious insidious motives that she attributes to uh to other people um but yep. but of course barbara pym does not make her out to be someone deeply unpleasant either uh, she she shows the character's vulnerabilities her infatuation with mr strong while it's very misguided uh, and very much a fantasy you know is still showing that there is some you know romantic tendencies in marcy is still some affection if we could always put it that way uh, even if it even if it is obsessive as well i mean her Feelings for Mr. Strong are, are as obsessive as the collecting of milk bottles, you know, because she has to go and visit his house, stand across from it, have a look at it, uh, see what his garden might be like. <laughs> so there's still yes. an obsessive quality. Not quite a stalking quality, but you never know if, if she'd been younger what that might have become. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agreed. Yeah, I think that's that sums up. Marcia well I mean I, I agree it's like it's again a character so well written actually because there are these little moments you know there's one point where Norman she's about to leave the restaurant mm. and she's not really enjoyed it you know she's she's clearly very out the, out the habit of socialising having been retired for a while but then Norman says oh you know something like oh you know we're enjoying your company or we don't get the chance to speak or some, some little kind of warmth that, that, that really resonates yeah. with her and keeps her there but by the time she's got to the end of it and she's now thinking about this milk bottle that she's actually brought with her, you know, she dismisses the whole lunch mm. as a waste of time. But, you know, she then does this very kind of disturbingly antisocial thing of, of following Letty and demanding she takes this mm. milk bottle back and then she walks away feeling like it's been worthwhile in the end, you know. So a very kind of disturbed mindset, really. Um, well, yes. It's, it's the kind of... You know, it, it's the tragedy actually with her that the you know the one who has you know really psychologically disintegrates you know when when she's removed from the kind of day to day 
I suppose um, you know buffer of just or, or just the, you know the, the the connection with others. You know she's also the one that's the most paranoid and hostile to others. That's the, you know that's putting herself in, in that isolated situation. Actually, that's, that's you know affecting her sense of reality. Well, so it, well, very, it has. Very tragic. It, um, it has. Yeah. It, the ordering of the milk bottles. You you feel that that is a way of her trying to impose some order on her life and a sense of control and as ineffectual or misguided as it may be but because her focus is on things like milk bottles rather than mowing her lawn or socializing you know more things that that are pro-social because mowing the lawn is also thinking about your neighbors as much as course, it is about yeah. oneself. And likewise, socialising is thinking about others. Uh, she's on this sort of private quest to order these milk bottles and order her clothes and things like that. You know, so obsessive, but yeah. but also time-consuming. I mean, that's one of the things that um, Barbara Pym says about Letty's first day of retirement compared to Marcia's, which is that Marcia's kind of flies by in a way because she's so yep. obsessive. And it's that compulsive behaviour would be no doubt a way of uh, of avoiding uh, her fears and her pain. And I would suspect that what had happened to, you know, Marcia's mother's death and also Snowy, the cat's death, that these have been traumatic for Marcia, but she's never, uh, you know, got in touch with that pain and worked on it, reflected on it. She rather goes on these quests to, to order things uh, that have got nothing to do with that and therefore are safe in a way. They, they, are, they are obsessive distractions from probably that deep-rooted pain that never gets looked at. I think that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, certainly the the degree to which she's kind of detached herself from others, you know, and 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 of course the way that she always seems to perceive a reaching out so cynically, you know, at any time like the social worker comes or the, I think there's a point where Letty says, "Oh, you're you're looking a bit tired," and offers to make her a cup of tea, and she at that at that point earlier in the novel she kind of recognises the kindness, but she still has quite a cruel thought about. She thinks, oh, she is it an old sheep or something. She yeah. thinks Letty is, and you know, there's just always a kind of cynical reading, which is which is strange. You know that um, you know, g- given that this is quite straightforwardly people having a little bit of sympathy for her, she doesn't see it. You know, yeah, it, it's it's uh, more ungenerous than what Norman thinks of others i mean he yes. is a cynic but she is particularly suspicious and and it's all and, and because she's got such a, an unusual private life if we could call it that uh she yes. would not want people knowing what she's up to she would have to suspect people you know uh the the if they were coming to her door do they want a pry uh of because course, she's yeah. doing you know these odd private pursuits which you must know on some level are is is a bit unusual, um, but but you know in the novel when she tries to find out where Snowy is buried in the garden, there is a sort of sense that she's maybe looking a little bit at that pain, um, you know. That's true. But yeah. it doesn't amount yeah. to anything because unfortunately for Marcia, uh, it's all too late. The scene you described where Norman encourages her to to sit a little bit more, uh, 
when they're yes. having lunch. I mean, she she acknowledges that up to a point, but again, it's too late in terms of their circumstances for it to amount to anything. If they, if they were still working together and they had gone to lunch together, that would have been much more consequential for their lives. That that change, as small as it exactly. might be, but it's it's at the wrong time, and, and that's part of the tragedy of her circumstances is that uh, when you know anything that is a bit constructive just doesn't happen at an opportune time or the right time for this for Marcia. That was a that was a good point as well about the um, yeah the the respective differences actually in this transition to retirement. You know, Letty's very frustrating day one where she really in a sense feels the time yeah. weighing on her, and Marcia's been lost in this kind of obsessive, uh, you know, blur. I, I guess the the third question we're going to discuss was about the issue of of you know. Well, I mean, I, I, the novel maybe satirises some of the more kind of conventional mm. cliches about retirement, but generally, you know, this being a very hard time for people, you know, making the transition into simply enjoying, you know, the mm. kind of stereotypical mm. leisurely retirement is actually quite a hard thing for people to do, I would think. Certainly that seems to be what uh, Pim is suggesting in the novel here. So, yeah, what, what was, what's your thoughts on that? Why, why would, Do you see it as a very difficult transition inevitably or do you think it's not as, not as straightforward as that? Well, I, we have to bear in mind that... Uh, that with these four characters that uh, this stage of life is particularly difficult for them because they're not retiring and then spending more time with the grandkids sort of life. No. They sure. don't really have family. So it is much more um, difficult for them. There isn't that sort of safety net or uh, there isn't that prospect of fulfilling things that often people do at that stage of life in terms of more time to spend with your partner, more time to spend with your grandchildren and your own kids too. They don't have that. So I don't know how, yeah, they, they're obviously facing a bleaker or potentially bleaker set of circumstances compared to many. Again, it can vary because I've heard some people saying to me how much they were looking forward to retirement and then when they did retire that they've enjoyed it whereas others might see it as a wasteland i mean obviously there, there's there's yeah. uh, possibilities in between those two of course there are so it very much depends but so maybe it, it makes more sense to look at the potential challenges of it because some people do very much enjoy that stage of their life um what one way in which it can be a challenge is that if you've derived a lot of meaning and status and esteem from your job and you're no longer doing that, there could be, a, it could almost feel like a demotion for some people. Yeah. Um, you no longer quite have the same standing or importance. And um, there was a drama teacher, a famous drama teacher, Lajos Egri, if that's how you pronounce his name, uh, that had written a couple of seminal books on drama. And, and one of the chapters in one of his books is about uh, how important it is for us to, to feel important. He said mm -hmm. it is our most basic need 
And whether that's the case or not, we know that, say, in Maslow's pyramid, self-esteem, which is our sense of importance in many ways, is so integral to our well-being. And that could be that could be reduced. It might even feel decimated by retirement. Um, yeah. I mean, say, say if you were... Mr. Strong, the surgeon, <laughs> in in this novel, when he retires, well, it looks as though he has a family and he has that kind of safety net that these other, these four characters, main characters, don't have. But it could be still difficult for a Mr. Strong in that he's no longer the steam consultant anymore. People are not asking for his advice. Uh, nurses aren't following him and patients aren't following him as he walks down the corridors of the, the hospital. And so it could be quite a... He could feel a real loss there, potentially. Um, I think so. Yeah, I think I think you're spot on. It's interesting. Obviously, you mentioned earlier, you know, Norman, the character, for example, is this guy who feels very emasculated because even in his job, his working life, he doesn't really feel like mm. he's, you know, achieved what maybe the stereotypical male might might you know might at that sort yeah. of period in time but obviously for him he's living in a bed so you know without the inheritance that marcia leaves him actually his retirements look you know would be a very bleak and frustrating prospect um of course the lack of family and so on as well so that you know the the the, the economic circumstances the low self-esteem combined with the lack of company would be diabolical really and so that yeah i think you're right these characters it's really amped up i think letty as well there's the the issue of you know she, because she's she's not married that you know again the way things were at that time it's not been a particularly well-paid job she's looking at renting a room or at best house sharing with her friend that's the you know so the the sort of economic circumstances are making retirement more difficult you know particularly for her so again limited options so yeah the, none um, of them well, maybe Edwin, yeah. it's a little bit different. But for Letty and Norman, if Norman yeah. had the house left to him, they would not be living at their leisure, so to speak. So the, there is that thing of not only have they been expended by this company, uh, yeah. and their roles are actually expendable too because they're not getting replaced, that department. So it, 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 it um, highlights again, you know, in a more marked form, the expendability that people could feel after they've dedicated 30, 40 years of their working lives to a company. Uh, yes. And then, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of politely showed the door. Yeah, and uh, But yes, the, the economic situation is part of the difficulties for them in retirement. Whereas we could imagine if someone has been a, a noted lawyer or a noted surgeon like Mr. Strong, that he is retiring to his nice big house with his family. And so he's cushioned. He has a cushion in life or, or maybe more than one cushion, which these, yes. these characters don't have. Um, so it, it does depend. But yes, there are natural challenges partly for everyone with retirement. One of them is facing your own mortality. Um, of course, yeah. You know, even if you have a good retirement, you're aware that you're in your final phase of your life. Um, you know, so at that stage, even good things can be bittersweet because you know that you're in your final phase of your life. Uh, I, I mean, I heard I that when um, Alfred Hitchcock won his uh, Lifetime Achievement Oscar, that he that he felt like, well, that, that must mean I'm not far from death now. And uh, that yeah. was true, actually. 
Yeah. So even even positive things can be affected by that sense that you're in your final phase of your life, and nobody's escaping that, even if you're Mister Strong, say. No, I, th- I think that element is key, really, isn't it? Because obviously, the you know the title of the novel Quartet in Autumn, it's referring to the autumn of life, and there's there's you know there's recurring mention to leaves. I think at one point it talks about Norman, you know, he doesn't use up his holiday time, and then it says that these these unused holiday days sit there like mm. dead leaves. Yeah. And, and then later there's a you know Letty, I think she's she's having a woodland walk with her friend who's mm. talking you know at length about this new man that she's in love with, and who, who of course they won't live together. And she it's, it describes her seeing the beech leaves in the woods and wondering if it might be a good place to die. You know, thinking about this idea about countryside, yeah. it's really about death. This idea of moving out into the into the country. So yeah, it's, I think that I think that's the, that's unavoidably you know part of the part of the well, it as well is. for these characters. It, well, it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. the Letty mm-hmm. is actually the only one that really reflects on death. Uh, one of the yeah. interesting things about this novel is that all four of them are in the autumn years of their lives, but uh, they don't they don't really reflect too much on death. I mean, for Letty, it, uh, it comes in with these intrusive considerations, you know, such as what would yeah. it be like to lay down and die here in the woods and things like that, more macabre-like thoughts. But none of them really are facing their mortality in any um, extensive way. And, you know, philosophers like Heidegger would say that it's the confrontation with our mortality that allows us to to be more responsible and authentic in our choices. And there's the therapist Irving Yalom that uh, wrote a book called Staring into the Black Sun, I think it's called, which is Facing Our Mortality. Um, These characters are not staring into the black sun in any shape or form, uh, really there. In in some ways, I've heard critics say that for Barbara Pym, that every day is redemptive in many ways, you know, because making a cup of tea, having some biscuits or or making an omelette, for her, these are little redemptive things, you know, comfort food that helps us uh, deal with the trials and tribulations of life. But there is also the thing that every day, as existentialist philosophers keep on bagging on about, can sort of obscure uh, our mortality, and in obscuring it, we can get lost in the everyday and maybe lose sight of what is essential. Because even if the black sun is difficult to to look at, by confronting it, we're reminded of what's most important in our lives and how our lives are finite and we must, you know, make good decisions for our own benefit, for our own good, as much as we can. I think so. Yeah, I think that's it. That is, I think that's true, isn't it? They, I mean, like, for, it's interesting with the the characters aside from Letty, as you said. You know, I'm sure early in the novel there's a mention to Norman's reading a paper and he makes some comment about yeah. hypothermia and older people. And Letty's the one that that winces at that. The rest of them, it's like speaking about a slightly yeah. detached issue. And then, of course, Marcia, you know, is starving herself. Actually, she's hoarding tins of food. You mm. know, and thinking actually that she's somehow protecting herself yeah. or you know. 
so in all of them there is a real yeah even when the issue is explicitly discussed there's not an emotional investment in it actually what this means deeply aside from aside from letty as you described well the um, so, the thing for barbara yeah. pym is that uh, the characters in her novels that are closest to her in outlook if not completely in personality are the ones that can exercise a certain novelistic empathy with other people and letty in that scene is demonstrating that she can imagine you know what it must be like to be in that situation how it's a situation that she may unfortunately have to confront if she's not too careful uh so she has that and she also at points would say think about marcia facing a situation that she's facing this is something that barbara King, uh, pym's protagonists often do is that they they wonder how other people in their lives would face certain circumstances or what their lives may be like so it's a sort of novelistic yeah. empathy that 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 letty has the others don't really have that they they as as we've said they're a bit too mired in their own perspectives uh, and maybe also um, uh, somewhat self-satisfied, but for wrong reasons. Um, you, you know, the, there's a certain pride that the others I have, a misguided so. pride in their own judgments and outlook. I, I think you're right. I mean, like both, you know, we mentioned the economic situation a little while ago and obviously, but you know, both Marcy and Edwin, they're more, they're kind of financially comfortable, aren't they? And there's a slight sense of, you know, awareness of that. You know, I think Marcia has a kind of slight, um, you know, she slightly looks down on Norman actually, you know, because he's, you know, he's a slightly, in, you know, in this sense of inferior status. And I thought it was interesting that, that you know, both of those two actually repeatedly, um, consider the prospect of of letting one of the others house share with them you know marcia you know at some point edwin you know kind of um, you know he's aware that he has a house and norman lives in a bed sit and he has a spare room and then there's you know there's talk about could letty and marcia have shared and again you know those with the kind of you know the power to to do that really shy away from it they don't want to be bothered well but, again that you know, goes back to the responsibility issue that we were talking about earlier on again yeah. this novel is uh, complex and while we could see that that Marcia could have Letty stay with her and Edward can with Norman too it isn't unfortunately straightforward in that uh, we, Norman might not be the easiest person to live with for one thing no. given how he is so it's a bit complex uh, but what I think Pim was at least saying is that Marcy and Edwin should have reflected on it more deeply than what they did, even if they decided against it, ultimately. But they, they, yeah. they did not engage in any real moral inquiry. And and I, I think that's what Barbara Pym was asking of the characters, really. Indeed, I think I think that's a very um, yeah that's a, a very apt way of putting. Actually, um, it it links in actually to to another question yeah. we can consider that really on that on that issue because I think there are you know there's various moments where characters do read each other quite astutely actually um, you, you can see that but at the same time they have this tendency to just kind of accept their own 
flattering, usually self-justifications, mm. maybe particularly when they've evaded a responsibility, of course, but, you know, other times as well. And, and I think this comes up mm. so much. I, you know, it's like, to me, it seemed like Pym was trying to depict this as almost a kind of universal habit that we have. So I was curious to get, you know, do you think, is that the case? And if so, why is this something we're so prone to do? Well, we, we know that, that self-deception is ubiquitous. We all engage in it to some extent, and we see that process with each of these characters. Maybe not so much Letty, but uh, with the the other three, particularly Edwin and Marcia that are, as you say, economically privileged compared to the other two. And, And so they've got more that they would want to hide. They want to not confront perhaps their obligations, or at least their obligation to morally reflect. Um, so self-deception is ubiquitous. We all do it because there's things that make us feel uncomfortable and we always have the capacity to at least temporarily shove them away. Uh, the, the, the thing about it is that um, one of the most compelling accounts of self-deception that I've read is by the philosopher Herbert Fingery. I think you've read it as well, his book on oh, self-deception. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. yeah. And uh, he, he kind of uses a, a Sartrean, you know, related to John Paul Sartre, a Sartrean view of self-deception. But basically in relation to what we're talking about here is that he says that self-deception is doing something which he says is on a pre-reflective level, in other words, an unarticulated level, but not putting it into words, not avowing it. And so we we can have a sense of a discomforting truth that we don't want to spell out to ourselves, because if we put it into words, we become more conscious of it, and we also become more committed to confronting it when, when we can't just leave it at the unarticulated level and uh, push it away. And this is the thing, there is a connection between uh, a thought, authentic avowal of our situation and moral courage. Um, in Freud's first book, Studies in Hysteria, uh, he actually says that, uh, that people would not repress if they had more moral courage. So he sees it as a, as a lack of that virtue, Self-deception is lacking moral courage, according to Freud. And we can, we can see that with these characters, that if they had more moral courage, they would reflect uh, the, upon these uneasy and situations that they're in and potential moral obligations that they might have to confront. If they had that moral courage, they would look at those things, but, but they don't. It's so easy to shove it away, to not think about it, not to articulate it to yourself. Um, Yes, it's like a sort of, maybe like a kind of Pandora's box effect, you know, because it it struck me that obviously what they're doing is protecting their own self-image in their own minds, you know, by not, you know, by avoiding spelling out these things or just giving a slightly flattering, you know, Mm. touch up to something. But obviously then, you know, if somebody's operating from quite a simplistic view of human nature, maybe quite an unreflective one, uh, including of their own nature, you know, people kind of can fall into either good or bad categories in a kind of clear cut way. And so obviously as soon as they start to, people start to maybe own selfish thoughts, you know, and and really own that, then it kind of raises the question of which camp they'd be in. 
actually, the good camp or the bad camp. So, yeah, I kind of wondered maybe there is a sort of... Um, yeah, I think moral, you could say moral moral laziness there or, or, you know, just a tendency to kind of try and stick with a more straightforward positive self-image, actually, that could be just kind of shoving such ambiguities down into the unconscious a little bit when, as you, as you described, maybe we do get a sense of them, but, but there's a discomfort that we kind of then shy away from a little bit. Um, well, yes. I mean, if we look at Edwin, for, for example, here is a man that can feel he's a good person if he does his duty, if he follows certain ritualistic, uh, you, you know, acts. Uh, yes. The church provides a context where he can feel like a good person if he attends church, if he, if he uh, donates things to the local church, if he helps Letty to um, get another room. These sort of things uh, allow him to feel that he's a good person. But yeah. that is obviously um, a somewhat self-justifying outlook because it obscures or overlooks the role of motive, of intention and what you're feeling inside. And yeah. to open yourself up to that is to look at the, at the fact that we're much more complex than that and it's easier just to believe that if you, you know, do these kind of pragmatically altruistic acts as he does, that that makes you a good person. Uh, if he if if he was looking at his own motives, scrutinising them more, and his own feelings, he would realise, like any other person, that he's a more ambivalent ab ambivalent creature. Yeah. And that's the thing about opening ourselves up to how we really are, having that moral courage is that we we see a multitude of thoughts and feelings and potential motivations and we it's harder to, to define ourselves as simply good or bad. Um, but of course we've got more the chance of growth if we're being honest with ourselves. That's the upside of not, not well, exercising self-deception. Um, I think so. Well, well, exactly, yeah, because I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the down, the sort of flip side, I guess, to the, you know, the convenience of just, you know, just deceiving yourself about your motivations, say, if, as, as you described in the way that Edwin might be doing, you know, what will linger, of course, is, is a kind of looming but unarticulated sense of, you know, almost like an unconscious sense that may actually that maybe you might be worse than you actually are you know mm. if, if there's no mm. owning of the bad or the selfish then it's it's you know so th so there could actually be a kind of inverse effect on say the kind of self-esteem the characters have that might actually in some ways lead them to devalue their own worth on some level you know yes. like for example you know marcia doesn't consider norman might like her or there might be something likable about her that you know no. he's coming over to spy it's not something yeah. you know again that's um such a kind of actually negative um, implied view of herself actually that's going on well there. yes no, yeah if, if we're opening ourselves up to uh, possibilities of how things are then we have to to deal with a potential cognitive dissonance between how we thought they are and how they seem to be and that can be painful for some people uh, the thing about paranoia and suspicion and scepticism is that they can be very protective Marcy is somewhat protected by these perspectives even if they're stultifying and life-denying they do protect her in a way uh, 
Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, somebody could be in, in, in an air raid shelter and protected uh, from harm, but there's not much fulfillment in that situation. And her perspectives are a bit like that air raid shelter, you know, that the, the protector, but it's like a tomb, you know, a crypt, really. It rules out any positive motivation from others, uh, really, there. And, and, well, exactly. And I think yeah. when we look at self-deception as well, I was just thinking about a book written by an existential uh, psychologist and therapist, Robert Firestone, called The Fantasy Bond. <clears throat> and um, his view is that many people have a fantasy bond, which is this imagined connection with someone. It doesn't need to be like Marcia with Mr. Strong, but that is uh, certainly a very good example of a fantasy bond. And he felt it actually precluded us from living fully and living authentically because these fantasy bonds like she has with Mr. Strong, uh, they give her some attachment and meaning in her life, as illusory as it is, but if she actually was to lose that fantasy bond and face up authentically to the bleakness of her situation, then there could potentially be some change um, yes, there. But yeah. but she lives in <clears throat> she lives in this self deceiving state where she has this connection, this bond with Mister Strong that isn't really doesn't really exist. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, it's almost a complete fantasy, but it is our main attachment in, in our life. Yeah, the ending of the novel, um, I thought was kind of interesting. It, it obviously ends on, you know, a somewhat of a understatedly hopeful note. Um, typical Barbara Pym, it would have to be understated. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess the question really was, what what are the potential prospects for these characters to have happy, maybe or at least less isolated retirements? Um, you know, so I I don't know. Maybe I could kind of you know give you you know my kind yep. of take first yeah. for for that one. Um, I mean, I thought I thought it was kind of <laughs> there was a kind of poignant I, irony, really. I thought to me that that you know the most antisocial character really you could say in the novel or at least the most isolated one has has you know done this grand gesture mm. obviously and leaving her house to norman which which you know her death and the, you know the the getting together to organize the funeral and so on is almost like a potential catalyst for the others to actually maybe get over that awkward bridge from mm. colleagues to being friends perhaps so you know the, the, i'm not you know it wasn't a, it certainly it was far from a happy ending or even a terribly mm. positive ending. But I thought, you know, there, there was maybe signs there. And obviously the, there's a kind of slightly, um, you know, the, 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 the final page, you know, the, the ideas that Letty's friend Marjorie in the countryside, who's now, mm. you know, been dumped by the vicar and is now suddenly eligible, is encouraging Marjorie to bring Norman and Ed, Edwin out on a day in the countryside, you know, this idea. and it, But it kind of ends with a sort of, you know, humorous line from Letty in a way that she, you know, it, something, it, you know, that suddenly she was aware the future had more possibilities. You know, it's not that she, she thinks they're all about to become, you know, two couples and live in the mm, countryside, mm. but... But, you know, it was like, oh, it, it was enough in a way to slightly, you know, give her a sense of possibility that she wasn't seeing. So I, I, I thought there was a sort of, you know, a kind of moderate but 
you know somewhat upbeat finale going on there it wasn't it wasn't like i just have you know an out and out bleak prognosis what, no what, what did you think well there's a number of things i thought about i agree with what you're saying that there was a more possibility for these yeah. characters and that's probably to do with the fact that the death of the most eccentric and antisocial member probably allowed those three to be closer, actually, okay, because yeah. um, one of the interesting things about their choices is that when they have that lunch and the rendezvous, you know, that get-together, they, they, they have yeah. the four of them together, which is, I suppose, the right thing to do, but... But it doesn't occur to Edward and Norman that they might just invite Letty and that Marcy is too difficult um, a person to to relate to and leave her out. I'm not saying that would be the right thing to do, but because Marcy was included and Marcy is so eccentric, it makes the get-together more complicated and, and perhaps some people, you know, might think that, what was the point, really? You know, like, she comes after Letty with a milk bottle and thrusts her at her yeah. and then walks away. I mean, if it was me, <laughs> I'd be thinking, I don't want to meet this person again. Um, well, but, that's, but, yeah, the other, somebody, somebody asks her, what have you been doing with your retirement? And she says, that's my business. Yes, you know, that's, yeah. you know, she comes yeah, them days. Exactly. Um, so, so she is quite <laughs> antisocial, to say the least. But because she's died and it's brought the three closer together, you know, because they've now got more of an awareness of the finitude of their lives and also what they've had in common, that they could be there for each other in a way, up to a point. That yeah, there is that up, to a, point, up yeah. to a point. That's what makes it uh, a bit more hopeful, obviously in an understated way. So that the, there is that potential for them to recognise the importance of being there for each other because they are what they're all that each other has in a way. And with Marcy yeah, not yeah. being there, it's probably going to make it easier for them to socialise, actually, with each other because Marcy did make it more complex, to say the least. Um, yeah, I think that is that is a good point. It was like she occupied their thoughts in a kind of guilty way, yes, but, but in a way yeah. that demotivated them to... You know, Norman and Edwin particularly to actually take any action to instigate something. It was like yeah. a kind of well, hot, hot potato kind of situation. Well, exactly. Yeah. It's, and out of social decorum and a little bit of concern as well, if they were meeting uh, in the future and Marcy was still alive, she'd always have to be brought along. And that yeah. would just make them disinclined to do it. Whereas now, they could come occasionally to the country and see Letty, and they could. There's, there's a chance of more of a friendship. Uh, there. Yeah, it was just, it was like um, a, a certain alignment of circumstances. You know, obviously Norman has inherited, has been yeah. left this house by Marcia, so he, you know, obviously mentioned, you know, enhanced maybe self esteem, mm. but but you know, economic means. Edwin, it's hard to imagine him changing much about his kind of, you know, bachelor church-going lifestyle because he seems mm. so deeply invested in that but i mean he does you know he does have that part of him that wants to do the right thing to a point in meeting up well, so you yes, can see that yeah. a little bit more yeah but i would say um, that because edwin and norman hunt quite faced retirement like letty had that when they yeah. do they probably would rely on each other more for company because they are what 
each other has really. Um, I, I'm sure well, that they, Edwin, they should. I, I know that Edwin would be uh, do involved with the church quite a lot, but still, he would probably recognise that meeting up with uh, Letty and Norman was some company, and that they were that they did share this commonality, even if it wasn't something that they originally wanted or or they had recognised before Marcy's death. But the the yeah. second thing that I wanted to say regarding it is that um, I did find the end of the novel a bit curious because I don't have it right beside me, but I think probably the last line said something about a recognition of the infinite possibilities of change. You know, that life had the infinite possibilities of change. I think. That's exactly what and, it is, yeah. And I thought to myself, is this a misstep from Barbara Pym? Because this is an immaculate novel in so many ways. We know how subtle yeah. and humorous it is. But that last line... It's not. It just doesn't gel with the rest of the novel. I feel. I feel it was a misstep to put it that way. Maybe, maybe it was what she deeply believed, but I'm not sure that the characters prove that. To be honest, no. I, I, that's a very. It's a good point. I hadn't thought about that word. Infinite possibilities exactly. for change just seems so contradictory. It just. I mean, it's it funny. It just but- seems like an unwarranted, upbeat sentiment. Or a yeah. philosophy of life that the novel doesn't justify. We, it's funny, really, because the first line of the novel is that day the four of them went to the mm. library, though at different times. Yeah. You know, which just absolutely sets up perfectly. Yeah. You know what we see. You know this, 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 this connection. So I think, to, yeah, I think you're right to go almost full circle to such a infinite change. No, I, th- I think, it, and it's not even really implied in the scene that's just happened. Well, actually, you know, in terms of the. That you know the the sort of somewhat reconciliation with a friend in the countryside because Letty still you know has got now a more guarded mm. view of this friend. She she seems less inclined to be led by her actually yeah. because of having been ditched and then maybe tried to be picked yeah. up again. So well, yeah, the, I think the, so. I think that's the thing yeah. is that you know I I felt quite saddened by it because she had portrayed so well that even in these bleak circumstances that the characters are in, there is still the possibility for some change, um, some significant change, even if it is by no means very dramatic. But to say infinite change, I mean, I know I'm being pernickety here, but but the fact that she wanted to put that at the end of her novel was, to my mind, that she wanted to convey something very important about how she saw life. And that's fine yeah. if she saw life that way, but she did not write a novel that conveyed that. And it's it's bizarre. And, and it, it, it seems so unwarranted. A... It seems like yeah. that she wanted to be more upbeat and optimistic than what she had been practically for the whole um, novel. And I mean, let's face it: even if you're in more enviable circumstances than these four characters at retirement age, you're in your autumn years. It's not a thing of infinite possibility. I mean, that doesn't exist even for a young person. Um, no. I mean, I mean, we could have the sense of infinite possibility, but quite frankly, it would be a delusion. 
And for her, so it doesn't really make much philosophical sense, and it doesn't really fit in with the logic of the novel. So I'm very intrigued by why Miss Pym was so careful about how she, in the way that she writes. She is a precise writer. Uh, why she put that. Yeah. It just doesn't seem warranted. It's it's, it's it's almost like, you know, an editor's got in there and just done a slight reworking, <laughs> you know, just to, I mean, it's, it is, you're right, it's so discordant because everything else, you know, as you say, our use of language, it's so carefully crafted and the characters, you know, are so consistent mm. and, you know, just, it really is a beautifully written novel. But yeah, you're right, I, I, I hadn't considered that, but I agree with you, that is an odd way to I mean, I, th- I had to read it sentence, several times. Yeah. I thought, yeah. am I, you know, <laughs> did she write that? And, yep. and I mean, I'm not going to be one of those uh, nasty critics that, that says, you know, um, like a decadent poet that just spoils everything. <laughs> you know, like one of those tiresome <laughs> seats that just say, oh, well, that spoiled the whole novel. But I'm not meaning that at all. I'm just no, so intrigued no, 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 no. that she yeah. wanted to write that sentiment because, first of all, uh, it's more a bumper sticker sentiment i'm afraid and secondly it is she certainly did write a novel that 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 supports that view of life um i mean i remember um in a speech that pinter gave you know to bristol university about his plays that he said that uh, plays of the past had often portrayed life with a capital l and he was intimating that he was portraying life with a small l and that's what Barbara Pym does brilliantly. Life with a small Definitely. L. Yeah, that's not life yeah. with infinite possibilities. With a no, small no, L. No, no. Yeah, and so, it's like yeah, you know, you couldn't cut another sentence out the novel really without something being lost. But yeah, you're quite right. It is a little bit, you know, funny that the final sentence just just doesn't quite fit. You know, it really there's no getting away from it. If she'd if she'd conveyed that. Um, I think actually, in a way, I didn't read it carefully, and I just almost filled in, you know, my own um, imaginings of what it would have said. Which, being that it, you know, Letty mm. realizes there's a little bit more possibility opened up to her than she might have thought there had been. You know, mm-hmm. a very kind of I would, you know, you could make a very modest claim for a kind of positive ending, which I was kind of, you know, obviously doing there. But yeah, you're right. I, I don't know. It's 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 far well, out. You know that it um, is. I mean, if if the, she yeah. had. If she'd written something to the effect that that uh, you know significant changes are still possible in our lives, even yeah. if we we didn't imagine they were possible, then something of that to that effect. Obviously, it'd have to be put in a more literary way because that sounds like Reggie's brother-in-law kind of statement. But but you know, <laughs> if, if for people yes. that have seen the Fallen Rise of Rachel Perrin, they'll know what we're talking about. They'll, they'll get that. But yeah, if yeah. you haven't, you'll just be confused. But um, <laughs> but yeah, it 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 was a misstep in in a novel that that is so precise, so so exact, yeah. and and who knows? It may be the case that for Barbara Pym. This was written just a few years before she herself died. That that maybe yeah. it was something that she wanted to affirm to herself. Um, maybe 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 there was a little bit of self deception crept in there. Um, yeah, I mean, you, I'm not sure if you know this. I I just read earlier that um, apparently she, you know, because obviously in the novel Marcy mm. has a mastectomy. You know, she's had a breast yes, cancer. Yeah, that's and it right. Terminal. 
Pim herself yeah. had that operation yeah. and survived for a period of time, but then obviously I think it was breast cancer that kind of made a, yes. a resurgence. Yeah. And you know she was only I think was it sixty five or sixty six? I think when not not particularly. She was old about sixty seven. Yeah, she she is, yeah. she had succumbed to to breast cancer, unfortunately, and her career and I mean Quartet in Autumn had been shortlisted for the Booker Prize unfortunately it didn't win but it was shortlisted for that her next novel The Sweet Dove Died which I've read is a brilliant novel too uh, in some ways it is uh, as bleak as Quartet in Autumn uh, but but yes it might be for, for Miss Pym that uh, she'd had this period where she, she had her wilderness years, where yeah, publishers yeah, weren't touching right. her books. And yep. she still, you know, valiantly continued to write, which was brilliant. And she did have eventually uh, her second coming with those books. But it might be that after those wilderness years and then getting published and getting critically acclaimed again, maybe she was, yeah. maybe she had the sense of infinite possibility. So yeah, and, that's an interesting point. And, uh, but like, but yeah. I would say that it, that that as great as that was for her and for us as well, because we we were treated to you know these great novels. Still, I don't. Still, I think it is a a bumper sticker sentiment. Yeah, yeah, um, indeed. And, yeah, and no, um, I mean, there's there's no getting it, and, it, and it's <laughs> it's you know obviously it's a final final point in a way we're making well i mean mean, there's no getting around it it's the final sentence isn't it i mean it's not it's not as uh, but it's the it's the final point of what we've been talking about but it is not the concluded point (laughs) um indeed and and such because we do want to emphasize how great and moving and subtle and how intensely moralistic it is because it looks at the morality everyday acts which is so important and she's brilliant at that so i'm not i'm not wanting to conclude on that misjudgment (laughs) i'm just saying that i I want to highlight it uh there i I just wanted to explore why that might have happened because barbara pym was far too subtle and perceptive for bar uh, for bumper sticker sentiments in general but something, exactly. and I'm, I'm just, I'm just so intrigued why an editor didn't spot that and think, wait a minute, is this something that 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 needs to be changed or at least have a discussion with her about that? Yeah. Um, because well, as I said, my best theory is that the editor has inserted the word infinite, <laughs> you know, where it said limited, and uh, you know that's the that's the. But no, I don't, I don't know. It's, well, it's strange, isn't it? You know, it's it's hard it's, to come up with anything. You know that, uh, yeah. Well, it, I, don't I mean, know, she takes... was not writing a, a traditional romantic story that had to have a terribly happy ending. So there was no need to fudge it in that way. No. Um, no. I suspect, though, that's what she believed. Um, the, she, she was probably elated by a recent good fortune, you know, good fortune that yeah. was deserved. But sure, it was yeah. it was a bit of a misstep, and it... it um, and we just wanted to say to our listeners that we don't feel that it encapsulates the outlook of, of the novel and dare I say no, of life either, really. Uh, yeah, and that's stuff, right. You know, I mean, we probably, yeah. 
we'd probably get more listeners if we were saying things like life is a, a great <laughs> infinite possibility of change because you know that <laughs> who doesn't want to hear that who yeah, doesn't exactly. want to hear that or believe that yeah. but but again yep. we spoke about the power of self-deception and and uh <laughs> yes. you know there are infinite possibilities in, in life but that doesn't mean to say that uh we've got to be schopenhauerian about it as well exactly exactly no and i think that's what's great about barbara pym's writing is just the fact that it's so it's just incredibly true to life uh, and and she's she that's why you know she is a brilliant novelist and her novels are so compelling for that reason and, and she does she generally doesn't err on the you know unconvincingly bleak or optimistic actually it just seems very much on 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 the nose you know for yes but i mean because it's lived with a small uh, yes exactly know. she is a brilliant uh portrayer of life with a small l which is yeah. the life that we generally all lead Yes, you exactly. know um, exactly. Not, yeah, ev- not everyone, but most of us, and um, and she shows that there is the capacity for change. There's the capacity for humour. There's the capacity for poignancy in that life. There's even the capacity for tragedy in that life. Because let's face it, Marcy is not a Greek tragic hero, but. No. There is a tragedy there that happens in her life. And so there's something uh, very moving and beautiful about that. And we're not yeah, just saying exactly. this so that we don't get death threats from ardent Barbara <laughs> Pym fans. <laughs> that was one of my motivations. But, um, yes. but <laughs> So good, good qualification. I think you. so. But no, that, that, that's, what we're, that's what we're really been. And that's what we should have as our concluded statement. There is the fear that so. we're so worried that we haven't really smoothed it over that we go on for another three hours <laughs> on this issue. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, think, I, think, I think probably we can... we'll lose a lot of listeners by that point and we'll get even less <laughs> subscribers you know we'll be down to zero <laughs> subscribers again <laughs> yeah no i think so I, I i think um i think that that's you know done justice to it we're going to leave it in finite possibilities not infinite <laughs> end of I, I must admit that if you use the word finite possibilities it does it does sound more like a philosophy uh bastard work than than a novel but <laughs> It's definitely got less of a, a ring it's to it. It's not so literally to it's, speak it's, about life has got finite <laughs> possibilities, but even if it is accurate. <laughs> so I, I'm just so there we I'm go. looking we've, for a rewording of that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And well, that that can be our task for the next, the, the next month. <laughs> we'll rewrite the final Yes, sentence. that's yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, well, thank you. That's been that's been interesting, Alex. And, okay, thank uh, you. Yeah, um, so thanks for that. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers.